Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For a serious note, uh, a very nice lady who I do not know uh, read our ad for the conference in uh, World Magazine and sent me this clipping from the Joplin, Missouri paper, the Joplin Globe, and she sent me a cover letter, and I'll read a, a paragraph from the cover letter. She says, being a former adult Catholic for 20 years, I'm grieved to witness the merging of Protestant groups with Catholicism. I'm unable to attend the conference, but I'm interested in purchasing the tapes, and here's an article I thought you would be interested in. And the article is, Marion Day's Draw 60,000. Now, this is a celebration that they have in a little town uh, in Missouri. And it's organized by the Congregation of the Mother Co-Redemptrix. And it's celebrating the 20th anniversary. It's an annual event, but this year is the 20th anniversary of an apparition of the Virgin Mary who appeared in Vietnam. Uh, and these are uh, a colony of Vietnamese uh, Catholics out in Missouri. They had the first Marian Day celebration, and 200 people turned out. This year they expect 60,000. And in order to encourage attendance at this celebration, uh, the Pope has declared an absolute indulgence for those making a pilgrimage uh, to Missouri to participate in Marian Day. <laughs> Um, and I'll read you a couple of paragraphs uh, from this uh, article here. Uh, people, they, quote, they interviewed people affiliated with the celebration, and uh, they interviewed this gentleman. He says, we never get tired and we don't get sick from working in the rain because we have the spirit of Mary with us. Uh, Lee said he has been attending Marian Days for more than ten years, and he always arrives really to set up tents for others. I have to be here or I don't feel right, he said. All three men said the celebration of Our Lady of La Vang and the anniversary of the canonization of the martyrs would increase crowds this year. This is a very important year for us. This absolute indulgence apparently means, and I, I'm sorry I misinformed someone here and I don't recall who it was, the absolute indulgence means that they can cleanse themselves of sin and the tendency to sin. Not, not do they just get rid of sin, but they get rid of concupiscence as well in formal terms in uh, Roman Catholic theology by going on this pilgrimage to Missouri. Now our speaker this evening, Tim, uh, is going to be talking about the apparitions of Mary. Uh, he's written several books. I'm sure you've seen them back there on the table. Uh, Graven Bread. Uh, subtitled The Papacy, The Apparitions of Mary, and the Worship of the Bread on the Altar. And I urge you to read it. <laughs> There's no endorsement from J.I. here. <laughs> Quite contrary, a biblical reconsideration of the apparitions of Mary. 
And uh, he's also edited this book, Geese in Their Hoods. It's a collection of writings by Spurgeon on Catholicism. Uh, Tim is an engineer for NASA. Uh, he comes to us from uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, he makes the point that to put on a conference like this, it does take a rocket scientist. <laughs> Would you welcome Tim, please? Absolute indulgence. I think there's a vodka commercial in there somewhere. I'll have to send that off to Absolute. I, uh, I was having a conversation with some friends a while back, and uh, someone piped up and asked me the question. Uh, we were talking about Roman Catholicism, and they asked me, uh, do you believe there are sheep in the Roman Catholic Church? And... Uh, the first thing I said back to them was, you may, not realizing it, you may not realize it, but you're asking about five or six different questions. Uh, and the reason is, there's so many different definitions of sheep, different definitions of in, there's so many different <laughs> definitions of church. And uh, you know, it could mean anything. And if you're not careful, you could lead someone to believe that there are actual practicing, confirmed, uh, confessing believers who are comfortable sitting in the pews at Rome. Um, I was uh, visiting Rome myself uh, for a weekend earlier this year, and for a brief moment there was a sheep <laughs> in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but it, it depends on, on how you define words. And, uh, of course, the Scriptures teach us that um, sheep are, are those who are elected by God before the foundation of the world, elected in Christ. And some of those sheep may not have been regenerated yet, and some of those sheep may not yet have even been born. And so uh, I explained to them, I do believe that there are sheep within the Roman Catholic Church, and I believe that they have not yet been regenerated. And when they're regenerated, they will be uh, de facto excommunicated from Rome, and the Lord will draw them out. But there are no uh, believers who are sitting comfortably in the pews at Rome acknowledging the sacrifice of the Mass and confessing the dogmas of Rome. And uh, it took me about 20 minutes to explain that, and I realized uh, the time is going to come when I really need to come up with a better answer to that, a quicker answer to that. And uh, the opportunity presented itself about two months later where someone asked very much the same question. They said, uh, uh, do you believe that there are some people in you know, Roman Catholicism who just don't know any better or just uh, believers in Rome who just haven't come out yet? And uh, my answer was simple. I said, the Roman Catholic religion is in league with the devil. That was my answer. And the reason that I answered that way is because I've had so many friends say, well, I've got some dear friends who are Roman Catholic, and sure, they, play, they pray their rosary and all, but what's the big deal about that? And uh, the big deal about that is that the Roman Catholic religion is in league with the devil. And they, they have friends who, uh, who think that they have to do extra work, so what's the big deal about that? They believe in Jesus, they believe in eternal life. And my answer is, the Roman Catholic religion is in league with the devil. They've got friends who wear their scapulars, but they still confess Christ. What's wrong with that? You know what's wrong with that? The Roman Catholic Church is in league with the devil. Yes. Well, I, I, I say that for a very specific reason. That's the ultimate conclusion of the paper that I'm presenting at this conference. 
And uh, the title of the paper, paper is uh, Roman Catholic Marian Superstition and Its Influences in Rome. And the, the question that, that I need to answer tonight is where does a lot of the superstition come from? And the superstition comes from the devil in a very active and, and very specific way. It's, it's not just sort of a random thing that people come up with in their minds, although that too can be a source of superstition. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, the, the visions of Mary, uh, but first I want to just talk about where Mary is in the hearts of Roman Catholics. And, uh, and, and strangely enough, they actually do believe that Mary is in the hearts of Roman Catholics. They, uh, they believe that the spirit of Mary, as, uh, as John just read, the spirit of Mary... Uh, dwells in the hearts of Roman Catholics. And uh, you know, just the statement that John read, this gentleman that said that he has to be present at the shrine or he doesn't feel right uh, because the spirit of Mary is there. That, that's superstition. Uh, and that superstition has a very specific origin. Um, the, uh, the, the Roman Catholics who, who regard Mary as mediatrix and redemptress are just longing for the, the Pope to come out and proclaim the final Marian dogma. Uh, you may have read uh, in this magazine, Newsweek, that came out earlier, uh, came out last year, the meaning of Mary. Uh, in, in this uh, in this magazine, there's an article just about this new dogma, what its implications are, and what people are thinking about it. Uh, there's also another booklet uh, called Mary, Co-Redemptress, uh, uh, Mediatrix, and Advocate. And contained in this are the uh, petition cards that you can fill out. You've probably heard before that millions of Roman Catholics around the world have sent petition cards to John Paul II asking him to proclaim the dogma. Well, this is where they're getting their petition cards from, uh, from this little booklet here that you can order. Uh, and you can get uh, lots of copies and distribute them to your friends if you like. Um, uh, or, or maybe your friends that you don't like. But anyway, uh, but, but the, the devotion, it's, it's not like John Paul II requires a whole lot of convincing. Uh, John Paul II himself is a Marianist. Uh, if, you, uh, if you have your copy of the Catechism that Richard Bennett recommended you buy, uh, it, we, we certainly hawk a lot of Catholic goods around here, don't we? I've got my scapular, my miraculous medal here with me, and we've just got a catechism. Let's all go shopping afterward, buy some Catholic stuff. Um, in, in the 1994 catechism, John Paul II, uh, he wrote the introduction to that, and he said, I beseech the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Incarnate Word, and Mother of the whole Church, to support with her powerful intercession the catechetical work of the entire Church on every level, at this time when she is called to a new level of, a new level of evangelization. When John Paul II talks about her powerful intercession, and Roman Catholics are talking about uh, Mary and her, her mediating role and her co-redeeming role, and, and they're talking about uh, the spirit of Mary dwelling in us. Uh, if you've ever read The Glories of Mary uh, by, uh, by Alphonsus Liguori, there are quotes in there that say that you know when, uh, when, when Mary speaks, I almost obey, even God. And one of the visions of Mary that has been approved by the Roman Catholic Church, even says that, that Mary gave us six days for working and the seventh she is reserved for herself. Uh, when you think about this, you think about the spirit of Mary, the uh, redeeming uh, merit of Mary's work, the advocacy of Mary, uh, uh, Mary giving us seven days for working. You, you begin to realize that, that Mary has become, in the Roman mind, a self-standing trinity of her own, hasn't she? She's adopted all the uh, very specific and individual attributes that were reserved for the individual persons in the Trinity. Um, but, but where does this come from? Uh, I, I want to talk about the visions of Mary, but first I want to start talking about where John Paul II uh, found his Marian devotion. And if you ever got a chance to read a, another Catholic book, I recommend getting a hold of this one if you don't have it, uh, Crossing the Threshold of Hope by His Holiness John Paul II. 
in this book, he talks about where his devotion came to and how it is that he came to be devoted to Mary. He says that during the Second World War, while I was employed as a factory worker, I came to be attracted to Marian devotion. Thanks to St. Louis de Montfort, I came to understand that true devotion to the Mother of God is actually Christocentric. Indeed, it is profoundly rooted in the mysteries of the Incarnation and Redemption. And I've got another book here that uh, John Paul II actually called this out by name in his book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope. It's called True Devotion to the Blessed Virgin. And uh, it's in this book that we find out that, uh, that the Lord sends forth his spirit, and when the spirit sees the spirit of Mary residing in the hearts of God's elect, then God sends his spirit into them, uh, making Mary the deposit of our inheritance, the first deposit of our inheritance. Um, but John Paul II doesn't just have a devotion that's based on uh, the written Marian writings of the Roman Catholic Church. He actually has devotion that's based on the more experiential aspect of Marianism, which is uh, the Marian apparitions. Uh, we had one referred to tonight. Uh, there's, there's many others throughout the history of the church. Uh, and I'm not going to get to all of them. We could spend a whole night just talking about what all the visions of Mary have said. Uh, but what I want to talk about tonight is just a few of them and then talk about their origins. Uh, John Paul II, in a 1983 visit to Lourdes, um, where, where a vision of Mary appeared uh, uh, back in uh, 1858, said, Behold, here is what was spoken about the, in the book of Apocalypse. The dragon stopped in front of the woman as she was having the child so that he could eat it as soon as it was born from his mother. And, and what he's referring to really is the first half of that verse that says, uh, I looked up and I saw in the heavens uh, uh, a woman wearing a crown of 12 stars standing on the moon and clothed in the sun. And that's how Mary is purported to appear in all the different apparitions. And John Paul II was saying, this is what Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is talking about. Talking about a woman appearing uh, with 12 stars for a crown standing on the sun, uh, standing on the moon and clothed in the sun. Of course, uh, the, the problem with this, of course, is that... Uh, the woman who's described in Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2, is experiencing childbirth pains, isn't she? And uh, we know that childbirth pains are the consequence of the original sin that Mary was supposed to have been exempted from, right? Uh, which, of course, causes a little bit of a contradiction. It's that paradox that they love so much, isn't it? The paradox. Um, John Paul II uh, also is very much devoted to the apparition of Mary at Fatima. In fact, it's his, it's his favorite apparition. And uh, he actually said that when he survived the, the uh, assassination attempt in 1981, that the reason that he survived was because of the intercession of uh, Mary of Fatima. And the reason he believes this is because the assassination attempt uh, took place on the anniversary of the appearance of, the, of Mary at Fatima in 1917. His words were, uh, perhaps this is why it was necessary for the assassination attempt to be made on St. Peter Square, in St. Peter Square, precisely on May 13, 1981, the anniversary of the first apparition of Fatima, so that all could become more transparent and comprehensible, so that the voice of God, which speaks in human history through the signs of the times, could be more easily heard and understood. Now, this is, what, this is the definition of superstition. I mean, this is what it is when people begin to see the voice of God speaking to them through events. Uh, you know, in, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8, 9, uh, 8 through 11, you know, Paul is rebuking the Galatians because they've fallen into superstition. He says, uh, you know, how is it that you're turning back to the weak and beggarly elements of the natural world, the things which you once rejected? He says, you're, you're beginning to, to, to observe uh, days and, and weeks and months and seasons and years. And this is what John Paul II has done. He's saying, hey, this event happened on the same day as another event. God must be speaking to us somehow. This is the voice of God. And if you want to know another source of Roman Catholic revelation, well, this is it. You've got the word, you've got tradition. 
Uh, you've got uh, the, the magisterium, and you've got all sorts of other things, and now you have events taking place that coincide with other events that took place in history. And he says plainly, uh, so that the voice of God which speaks in human history. Uh, this is superstition. But uh, that's not the only apparition that John Paul II is devoted to. He also has a kind of a closet uh, devotion to the apparition of Mary at Medjugorje. Uh, Medjugorje, formerly uh, in Yugoslavia, it's still in the same location, it's just a different country now, Bosnia, Herzegovina. Uh, John Paul II has been, uh, has been quoted as saying, if I wasn't a pope, I'd be in Medjugorje already. And I also have other sources that tell me that uh, when, no one, uh, when he thinks nobody's listening or when he's trying to be secret, he, he, he compares uh, Medjugorje to Fatima, saying that Medjugorje is the fulfillment of Fatima. And John Paul II himself believes that he's the custodian of the Fatima uh, mandate. And we're going to get to the Fatima mandate later on. I'm sure if any of you were raised as Roman Catholics, you know what that is. But John Paul II is very much uh, in love with the different visions of Mary throughout the world. He, he approved the pilgrimages to this one. Uh, that John was just talking about, and he's been on pilgrimages to Knock, Ireland, where there was a, an apparition of Mary in 1879. He's been on pilgrimages to Fatima. But the, the question before us really is, uh, what, what are these visions of Mary? And, um, you know, I, I get the question a lot of times, uh, is it the stuff like Jesus showing up on somebody's refrigerator or someone's freezer? And that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about the visions of Mary. We're actually referring to something that appears bodily uh, as a woman and speaks to people who are there uh, to hear the visionaries. Uh, the visionaries predominantly throughout history have been young children, but of late we've seen a lot to, to more uh, from older people, some uh, adults. Um, uh, Nancy Fowler, for example, she's uh, described as a middle-aged housewife in, in Carnegie, Georgia, and she had been receiving visions of Mary herself. Um, but, but the question before us is, what is the source of these visions of Mary? And... Uh, we could try to rely on our experiences and get a, a good feeling out of them and determine that they're from God, but uh, the real challenge before us and the mandate to us is to compare what gospel they're preaching to the gospel that John preached, uh, that, that Paul preached. And, uh, and when we make that comparison, uh, Paul renders his verdict for us. Uh, the apparitions of Mary of Fatima said, as, uh, as Richard Bennett mentioned earlier, uh, you must continue to make many sacrifices and pray because many people go to hell because they have no one to offer sacrifices for them. But we know from the scriptures that there was one sacrifice for sins, and it was, it's over, and when Jesus rose from the dead and took his uh, seat at the right hand of the Father, you know, that, that indicated that the sacrifice was complete, it was accepted, and it was final. No further need for sacrifices. Hebrews uh, 9.26 tells us, For then he must uh, often have suffered since the foundation of the world, if that were the case, if, if Rome's view is correct. Uh, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And Hebrews 10.18, I'm sure you're all familiar with, says now where there is remission of sins, there is no more offering for sin. And so clearly, clearly we see that at least the vision of Mary uh, violates the gospel of Jesus Christ and uh, casts the, the, the sanctity of the cross and Christ's sacrifice uh, underfoot and tells us that it really didn't accomplish what it was intended to accomplish and we need to continue to offer more sacrifices. Now, I'm only going to talk about one other apparition and what message is being taught, because we could go on all night about all the false gospel that originates with these apparitions. But um, Medjugorje, uh, the vision of Mary at Medjugorje, April 5th, 1985, uh, that apparition gave this most curious message. Uh, th there are literally thousands of messages, and they've been cataloged, and they've, they've published concordances uh, to so you can track which words are used in which messages and which phrases don't occur in any of the Marian apparitions in any of the messages of Medjugorje. 
but this one really jumped out at me for a reason I'm about to explain. But listen to what the apparition of Medjug- uh, in Medjugorje said. Uh, Dear children, this evening I pray that you especially venerate the heart of my son, Jesus. Make reparation for the wound inflicted on the heart of my son. That heart is offended by all kinds of sin. Uh, you know, at first blush, you know, I've read some, I, I, I know some, uh, some younger Christians who've read this, and they said, I don't understand what's wrong with this, Tim. And I have them read it again, and then I'll explain it to them a little bit. But listen to this, it says, You must make reparation for the wound inflicted on the heart of my son. The problem with this specific citation from the vision of Mary is that it puts forth the cause of our reconciliation with God as the cause of our separation from it. The apparition of Mary is saying Christ's suffering on the cross is the reason that God is mad at you. And you need to make reparation for the suffering that Christ endured on the cross. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, we know the truth. The truth is that Christ's suffering on the cross is the reason we don't need to make reparation. We, we're reconciled to God because of the sufferings of Christ on the cross. We're not separated from Him because of those sufferings. We're reconciled to Him. And for the vision of Mary to be that wrong uh, indicates that, well, it, it's really not Mary, is it? It's not who it, who it says it is. Uh, you know, Paul tells us in, uh, in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, should come to you preaching a different gospel than the one you received from us, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. I've, uh, I've heard some people say that, well, anathema doesn't mean uh, such a strong word as you're, you're saying it does, uh, mostly because I was quoting the anathemas of Trent to an ecumenical Catholic. And uh, they didn't like the idea that those anathemas were so strong. And they said, uh, it couldn't really mean what you're saying. And I said, well, I don't think that Paul meant, if anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel, let him be Protestant. Because that's what, that's what anathema would have to mean if Trent can be interpreted as an ecumenical document. But, but we know what Paul meant. Let, let him be cursed to hell, anybody who comes to you preaching a different gospel. And so we take the teaching from the scripture that says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, anyone coming to uh, us preaching a different gospel than the one which was received, uh, they, they should be anathematized, uh, cast underfoot. So we know that th- these visions of Mary are demonic. They're, they're really happening, and that's something I just can't emphasize enough. The apparitions of Mary really do happen. The, the testimonies from the visionaries, I think, are irrefutable. The scientific evidence is irrefutable. I, I've seen videotapes where the visionaries all have EKG devices hooked up to themselves, and then they instantly go into a trance, and all their eyes focus on the same point within one-fifth of a second. You know, I've seen these children on videotape doing the, the, the strangest things in the strangest positions that even young, flexible children shouldn't be able to do. Uh, it's demonic. These visions of Mary are really happening and they're preaching a false gospel. And the only conclusion we can arrive at is that they are, in fact, demonic. Uh, so, so what's my problem with that? Uh, obviously, we all have problems with something that's demonic, right? Uh, the, the problem I have is that the way Rome uh, portrays Mary in her many images uh, is not modeled after someone's pious uh, representation of what they think Mary probably looked like. The, the, the problem I have is that these images that Rome populates all of its uh, buildings with are actually images which were based on these different apparitions of Mary. And John, if you could help me now. I've got some uh, colored slides I wanted to show people. Um, and I want to just give you, an, just, just to think about, uh, if I had a photograph of an impersonation of Elvis, I couldn't honestly say that I had a picture of Elvis, could I? All I could say was I had a picture of an Elvis impersonator, right? Right? And so, if we model 
an image after a demon claiming to be Mary. We don't have an image of Mary, do we? We have an image of a Mary impersonator. We have an image of a demon. And if you could go ahead and put the first slide up there. Um, I'm sure all of you have probably seen this picture before. Uh, this, uh, one of the ways that Rome venerates Mary is to send a statue of Mary uh, around the world for veneration. And uh, these kind of statues Rome carries around in processions. Um, the thing that I wanted just to make clear on this is this, uh, this vision of Mary here is actually John Paul II's, on this statue of Mary, is an image of John Paul II's favorite apparition, uh, or the image of Mary at Fatima. And what I want to make clear is that these many uh, statues of Mary, which we see in Roman Catholic churches, are not statues of Mary. We, don't, we have no idea what Mary looked like. But we do know what the apparitions looked like. Because the apparitions appear and the children see what the apparitions look like. And these statues and paintings of Mary are based on what the apparition of Mary appeared as. And so we can't honestly say that what we have here is a statue of Mary. All we can say is that we have a statue of a Mary impersonator or a demon. And John Paul II here is paying his uh, reverence and his homage to a Mary impersonator. Uh, If we can get the next slide. Uh, This is... Something that just came out is advertised. You may have seen it in your Sunday paper. This is a statue you can buy. Uh, it, this is the apparition. This is a statue of the Mary that appeared at Lourdes. And the distinctive uh, characteristic of the apparition of Mary at Lourdes is that blue sash that you see. You see uh, she's wearing around her waist. All statues and images of Mary at Lourdes have that blue sash and also the gold ring of a crown. Some apparitions have a crown of 12 stars, but the apparition of Mary at Lourdes appeared with that gold ring. Uh, circling her head, the halo. Uh, if we could have the, the next one. Uh, this next image is... Uh, does anybody recognize this one? Guadalupe. Guadalupe. Now, how do we know that it's Guadalupe? Well, because that's the way the Guadalupe apparition appeared. Uh, even more than that, this is the image that the apparition at, uh, at Guadalupe left for us. Uh, this is not... What's that? <laughs> yeah, in other pictures, she's got blonde hair, right? This time she's got uh, dark hair. So. But uh, the... Uh, the vision of Mary at Guadalupe actually left this image of itself. And, and so again, we say this is not an image of Mary. It's not a picture of Mary, an icon of Mary. It's an icon of an impersonation of Mary. And all the different visions of Mary, uh, all, they all have their own particular uh, characteristics that identify them. And so you can actually, and if they see the, the, the next slide, you can actually get yourself a collector's edition of plate. Uh, here we're hawking our Catholic wares again. Uh, you've, you've got... Uh, uh, Our Lady of Grace over here in the corner. You've got uh, what is that one? I can't see that. Uh, Our Lady of Medjugorje here. You see the uh, the windswept uh, kind of cloak that she's wearing. That's very characteristic of, of the vision of Mary. It's the only one. I guess it was windy on, on top of the mountain. The, none of the other visions of Mary have that windswept look to them. Uh, this is uh, Our Lady of Lords again. If you look closely, you probably can't see it very well, but it's got uh, the, the gold ring for a crown. This is uh, Our Lady. Of uh, Mount, uh, I'm sorry, Our Lady of La Salette. We're going to talk a little bit more about some things that uh, she said. You've got the Our Lady of uh, Guadalupe down there, the one that Richard kindly identified for us. I've got Our Lady of Fatima here, and then you've got Our Lady of Mount Carmel down there. I think that's our that, yes, that's Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Now she's she's going to be really important to us because we're going to talk a little bit about the, the scapula later on, but she factored in. And uh, it's no wonder you can go ahead and put the next slide up there. It's no wonder that someone finally just admitted the problem and uh, published a book called The Many Faces of Mary, A Love Story. This is a, a, a book that was put out by Bob and Penny Lord. Uh, they're uh, they're uh, a married uh, Roman Catholic couple that just go around the world 
to pay homage to the different places where Mary appeared. And uh, they recognized long before I did that Mary just looks different everywhere they go. And the reason is, well, you know, as I said, which one of these is Mary? You know, if these were photographs, we'd have to conclude that these were all different women. And we don't know what, you know, what Mary looked like. All we can say is that all these different statues and all these different Roman Catholic uh, buildings around the world are statues of demons. And I've had personal friends of mine get married in Roman Catholic churches, and I'm sure you've seen this too, where uh, the, once the couple is married, they take a bouquet of roses and lay it at the, uh, the foot of a statue of Mary. Well, the, the, the statue that my friend and his wife laid their bouquet of roses uh, beneath was a statue of uh, Our Lady of, of uh, Fatima, a demon. He laid his uh, a bouquet of roses as a way to seal the sanctity of his marriage. He honored a, a demon by, by setting some roses at his feet. Uh, that's all the slides I have for now, John. Thanks. Now, uh, that, that's, just, that's just one uh, little part of what I want to talk about. I mean, it's just the beginning. I don't think that we can go around saying, oh, we've really nailed Roman Catholics on this. They've got statues of demons in their buildings. But I do want to just kind of show the flavor. We're, what I want to show as we go through all these different uh, uh, categories tonight is just to demonstrate that we're, we're seeing a tendency in the Roman Catholic religion, and more and more as we dig up more information, to give credence to that which is taught and given by devils. And, and, and making images of Mary is one thing, but, but the Guadalupe image was actually given by a demon. And there's another vision of Mary, that which took place in 1830 in, in Paris, France. It's called uh, Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal, and uh, the, the vision there appeared to St. Catherine Labouret. And in that case, the vision of Mary... Uh, instructed Catherine of Labouret to design a medal and actually provided the design of the medal to Catherine Labouret. And Catherine took that image and, and went and had it struck as a medal. And uh, in fact, let me go ahead and read to you the citation about that, that medal. Nope, I don't have it here. Uh, I've got it coming up later here. But, but uh, the, the visions of Mary actually have provided their own images to be struck and they've actually provided the image under which they would like to be venerated and if any of you have ever had your miraculous medal you look at the front of it uh, that picture of Mary on the miraculous medal was an image provided by a demon just like uh, you know when I was uh, being raised as a Roman Catholic we had that big icon of, uh, of Our Lady of Guadalupe well that was not just an image of a demon but an image provided by a demon now I would like to uh, I would like to move on and talk about the influences of the apparitions of Mary on Roman Catholic practice. And uh, actually, in this case, I want to start by talking about an apparition of Jesus and how the, an apparition of Jesus influenced the Roman Catholic religion. Um, on uh, May 8, 1928, Pope Pius XI published an encyclical called Miserentissimus Redemptor. I'm not sure Richard could probably give me the, the correct pronunciation on that. But... Uh, but this, this encyclical was on the practice of reparation to the Sacred Heart. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what the, the vision of Mary at Medjugorje was saying that we need to do. I want to go ahead and, and, and the reason this is so important is because in the encyclical, Pius XI actually quoted the vision of Jesus. Okay? He put the, the words of the vision of Jesus into the encyclical. You know, yet another form of revelation. Jesus visits us and gives us more teaching. Um, and I'll go ahead and quote uh, from parts of it. This is from uh, uh, paragraphs 12 and 21 of that encyclical. And, and well, let, let me give you a little bit more background on this. The, the vision of Jesus appeared to Margaret Mary Alacoque in the late 1600s. And, and that's how this practice of reparation to the Sacred Heart was introduced to the Roman Catholic Church. And Pope Pius XI published this encyclical to commemorate that and to encourage the practice. Listen to what he says in the encyclical 
uh, encouraging this form of devotion which was introduced by a vision of Jesus. For when Christ manifested himself to Margaret Mary and declared to her the infinitude of his love, at the same time, in the manner of a mourner, he complained that so many and such great injuries were done to him by ungrateful men. And we would that these words in which he made this complaint were fixed in the minds of the faithful and were never blotted out by oblivion. Quote, Behold this heart, he said, which has loved men so much and has loaded them with all benefits, and for this boundless love has had no return but neglect, and this often from those who were bound by a debt and a duty of more special love. And that's the end of the citation from Jesus, but uh, Pius XI continues. In order that these faults might be washed away, he then recommended several things to be done, and in particular the following as most pleasing to himself. Namely, that men should approach the altar with this purpose of expiating sin, making what is called the communion of reparation, and that they should likewise make expiatory supplications and prayers prolonged for a whole hour. There is surely no reason for doubting, venerable brethren, that from this devotion piously established and commanded to the whole church, many excellent benefits will flow forth not only to individual men, but also to society, sacred, civil, and domestic seeing that our Redeemer himself promised to Margaret Mary that, quote, all those who render this honor to his heart would be endowed with an abundance of heavenly graces. Now, there's two things I want to point out. The gospel being taught by this vision of Jesus is very much like the one that was being taught by the vision of Mary, putting forth Christ's sufferings as the offense for which we need to make reparation, an utter denial of the purpose of the incarnation and the the crucifixion and the resurrection. But the other thing that is so significant about this is that Pius XI said that this teaching which he received through Margaret Mary is for the whole church. And we know that when this issue of infallibility is always being bantered about within Rome and nobody can provide us with an infallible list of infallible Roman Catholic proclamations. But one of the things they always specify is that, well, if you can find some heresy taught by a Roman pope, uh, they will always say, well, he wasn't addressing the whole church, and so he wasn't speaking ex cathedra. He wasn't speaking infallibly. But in this case, Pius XI says this mandate is for the whole church. And so Pius XI was infallibly citing from a vision of Jesus, which, as it turned out, was demonic, and thereby putting the entire Roman Catholic religion under the infallible teaching of a demon, or the fallible teaching of a demon. Uh, but what other practices have been uh, uh, established in the Roman Catholic religion at the behest of these different visions? Well, let me quote from you, uh, quote from the Apostolic Constitution on Indulgences from January 1st, 1967. This was put out by Pope Paul VI. He says, The faithful who use with devotion an object of piety, a crucifix, cross, rosary, scapular, or medal, properly blessed by any priest, can acquire a partial indulgence. That's norm number 17 from the Apostolic Constitution on, on Indulgences. This is one of those teachings from a Roman Pope that's considered infallible because it's consistent with the rest of the magisterium. But I want to just highlight the specific things that are called out. And we could go through the whole Constitution on Indulgences and, and take it apart word for word, but I really just want to look at the specific articles that are called out. The crucifix, the cross, the rosary, the scapular, or the medal. Um, the scapular, I mentioned... I mentioned Our Lady of uh, Mount Carmel uh, when, when the, her image, the image of the demon was uh, displayed on the screen behind us. Uh, what's interesting about the, the practice of the scapular is that it was introduced to the Roman Catholic Church by the vision of Mary at Mount Carmel. Okay? St. Simon Stock in the uh, early 1200s received a vision of Mary who appeared to him as 
Our Lady of Mount Carmel and, and provided to him this practice of wearing the scapular. I think a lot of you are familiar with the scapular, so I'm not going to go into a lot of its history. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the scapular I have here, it actually has pictures that recount the transaction. It shows Our Lady of Mount Carmel appearing uh, on one, on one uh, square, and on the other one, it shows uh, the apparition handing the scapular over to St. Simon Stock. So, uh, I know that John will tell you that images can't convey truth, but we've got the evidence right here. It's got the pictures, okay? So if Roman Catholics tell you that that's just something of your imagination, it's right here. It's commemorated on the scapular, and they know that it's the case. Uh, the, the, the scapular was actually introduced to the church by a vision of Mary. Now, what's interesting about that is that later on, uh, Pope, let's see, Pope John the Twenty Second uh, proclaimed the Sabbatine privilege, and the Sabbatine privilege is... Uh, that if you're lucky, you die on a Friday. Or what, it, what the Sabbatine privilege really is, is that if you die wearing the scapular, uh, Mary will escort you out of purgatory on the first Saturday after you die. And so, if you die on a Friday, you know, you've got less than 24 hours and you're out. If you're wearing this. Now, later on, uh, in 1613, uh, Pope Paul V uh, reduced that blessing to say that Mary assisted you with her special graces and merits on the first Saturday after your death, but didn't necessarily escort you out of purgatory. But the, the point is that you have this whole string of folks who are confirming the scapular and then adjusting the doctrine and inventing the Sabbatine privilege, all of which was uh, introduced to the Roman Catholic religion by a demon. Uh, we'll continue, and I want to look at next is the miraculous medal. I've already talked with you uh, about its origins. The vision of Mary in 1830 to Catherine Labouret appeared and, and, and basically gave the design for this medal uh, with the promise that anybody who wears... Uh, this medal will receive great graces. And uh, I, I want to cite for you uh, uh, just the, the, the quote I, I was referring to earlier. This, again, is superstition defined uh, by Roman Catholicism. The, the vision of Mary appears, uh, provides the design for a medal to be struck, uh, says that everybody that wears it will receive great graces. Uh, well, the, the issue that always comes up with visions of Mary is they need to be either you know, approved or, or dealt with somehow. Uh, the Roman Catholic religion needs to do something to say this is really from God or it's not from God. It doesn't always work, though. I think they've tried that with Medjugorje to, to not, much, not much success. But uh, listen to the citation. It comes from a book called Encountering Mary. It says, While it is generally acknowledged that the great popularity of this miraculous medal helped prepare the way for Pope Pius IX's proclamation of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in 1854, it would seem that it also contributed substantially to the church's formal approval of the authenticity of Catherine's vision. I mean, the, again, it's another source of revelation. Hey, people wear this, they seem to get lucky. Uh, the, 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 uh, the vision they introduce it must be true. And this is what superstition is. And, and this is, the, the visions of Mary are playing into all these different forms of superstition, whether it's to, to kneel, uh, to lay your, your, your flowers before a statue of a demon when you get married, or to wear... Uh, a medal that was designed by a demon, or to wear a scapula that was given to the church by the Roman Catholic religion by a demon. This is superstition, and it's the superstition that says, well, they're practicing this, it seems to work, therefore its origins must be true. Well, the problem is that we don't, we don't determine what's demonic by what's work, what, what, what works and what doesn't work. We determine what's demonic by what gospel is being taught. And, of course, the apparition of Mary in 1830 says that this is one of the ways you get your graces. You, you get grace by the work of wearing the medal, right? And Richard has talked enough already about the, how you can't get your graces by the work worked, right? So the apparition of Mary, at least we can say the apparition of Mary in 1830 did not have a good understanding of grace, even though it purports to dispense it uh, to all Roman Catholics. The final uh, article that was referred to in the Apostolic Constitution on Indulgences was uh, the Rosary. 
which uh, also has a crucifix on it. But uh, this, this, uh, this was also introduced to the Roman Catholic religion uh, by a vision of Mary in 1206. Uh, St. Dominic Guzman received uh, the rosary in its current form um, from a vision of Mary. Now, I referred to St. Louis de Montfort earlier. I, I held up the book called True Devotion to Mary. He has another book. Let's see if I've got it. Yeah, I ordered these correctly. This is called The Secret of the Rosary by St. Louis de Montfort. And it's in this book, the one that's so, uh, this author who so heavily influenced John Paul II in his devotion to Mary, uh, it's in this book that we find out that, yes, indeed, the, in addition to the scapular being given to the Roman Catholic religion by a vision of Mary, the rosary also was given to the Roman Catholic religion by a demon, as it turns out. So, so far we've got uh, images of demons in the Roman Catholic Church buildings. We've got uh, indulgence doctrines being proclaimed, uh, the Sabbatine privilege being proclaimed based on an article and a practice that was introduced to the Roman Catholic religion by a demon. You've got uh, the practice of devotion to the Sacred Heart and one-hour communion reparations, uh, practiced by Rome and encouraged by Rome to the whole church, practices which were introduced by a demon, um, uh, praying your rosary, wearing your scapular, uh, wearing your miraculous medal, all these practices which were introduced by demons to the Roman Catholic religion. Uh, but now I want to talk about something that was just uh, a moment ago hinted at, and that is the influence of the apparitions of Mary on actual Roman Catholic dogma. Uh, and, and when I say that, I want to refer specifically to like, the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption and this final Marian dogma that so many Catholics are anxious to see, the dogma of uh, Mary being the co-redemptress, mediatress, and advocate for the people of God. Uh, as, as the citation I read earlier stated, the, the success of the Miraculous Medal had a significant impact on Pope Pius IX's uh, later proclamation of the Immaculate Conception dogma. And one reason for that is that part of the design of the medal is the wording around the circumference of the medal. Just in case the image wasn't enough to convey truth, the apparition provided some words along with the image. And the words were, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Now the reason that uh, Zimdar's Swartz, the, the woman who I cited here in, from that book, Encountering Mary, the reason she made reference to the Immaculate Conception dogma being influenced by the Miraculous Medal was because the Miraculous Medal, which stated, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee, was introduced as a practice to the Roman Catholic religion 24 years before the dogma was defined. So we have uh, Pope Pius IX uh, kind of getting hints from the vision of Mary 24 years in advance that it would be a really good idea to advance this dogma. Um, it was in 1858 that the apparition of Mary at Lourdes appeared, and one of the only recorded messages we have from the vision of Mary at Lourdes was when Bernadette asked it, Who are you? And the, uh, the vision of Mary responded, I am the Immaculate Conception. And this was considered by many Roman Catholics a confirmation that Pope Pius IX had spoken correctly, that he had in fact defined a dogma that was to be believed. And it, it was in fact a controversial issue. And I want to cite to you from uh, Patrick Marnham's book, Lords, A Modern Pilgrimage. He says, The dogma of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin was of some political importance to 19th century Catholicism. It was to most people as unapproachable as the idea of the Trinity itself. Nevertheless, enthusiasm for the baffling new dogma was an important part of the French clergy's attempts to lead a 19th century religious revival. Bernadette could hardly have provided a more welcome or a more unexpected name. Uh, and so we have uh, the vision of Mary actively influencing the Pope and, and the Roman Catholic religion on this issue of the Immaculate Conception. What I want to talk about is the the doctrine of the uh, of infallibility, papal infallibility. 
Now, now this isn't a dogma that was actually announced or proclaimed by a pope. It actually actually had to be proclaimed by the magisterium. Vatican Council I in 1870 is where the doctrine of papal infallibility was first officially proclaimed. Now, the significance of this and the apparitions of Mary was that the vision of Mary at La Salette, France, in 1846, I believe. Yes, 1846. The vision of Mary at La Salette, France, in 1846, wanted the visionaries there to send a secret message to Pope Pius IX. And the, the message was supposed to remain a secret, and for all I understand, it probably still is a secret, with the exception of two words. Uh, the children didn't know how to spell the word pontiff and infallible. And so they had to ask those words out loud. And so we know that the, the secret message being sent by the apparition of Mary at La Salette, France, in 1846 to Pope Pius IX contained the words infallible and pontiff, which is a word for pope or uh, supreme uh, bridge builder, you know, all those different titles that the pope loves to deck himself with. Well, that's kind of a hint, I guess. I, I, I don't, I really, like I said, I haven't seen the message, so I don't know what the exact message was. I'm sure it had something to do with papal infallibility because on February 12th in 1870, six months before the dogma was actually proclaimed by Vatican Council I, the vision of Mary appeared to Don Bosco. Now, Don Bosco is a very famous visionary within the Roman Catholic religion, and he receives uh, many revelations by dreams and visions. I have a book here called Dreams, Visions, and Prophecies of Don Bosco. Well, the vision of Mary appeared to him and said, you, you have to deliver this message to the Pope. It's extremely important that you do this. And uh, he actually obtained an audience with uh, Pope Pius IX, and the message that he had was, uh, Mary says that you need to uh, you know, really push through with this doctrine. The lecture continues in a moment. This way that they were actually able to go forward with the dogma. And uh, you remember when the apparition of Mary at Lourdes showed up in 1858 and confirmed the Immaculate Conception that had been proclaimed four years earlier by Pius IX? Well, uh, Pius IX considered that a confirmation of his infallibility. He says, people want to credit me with infallibility. I don't need it at all. Am I not infallible already? Didn't I establish the dogma of the Virgin's Immaculate Conception all by myself several years ago? Uh, that was quoted from the book, How the Pope Became Infallible, Pius IX and the Politics of Persuasion. But uh, so, so we see how the Immaculate Conception dogma and the Papal Infallibility dogma were both influenced by apparitions of Mary, which, as we know, are demons. Well, the next dogma is the Assumption of Mary. Uh, the reason the Assumption of Mary necessarily falls out of the Immaculate Conception dogma is because if Mary was conceived without sin and corruption in the grave is the consequence of sin, then Mary shouldn't have to suffer corruption in the grave, Right. Well, that's also the reason why Rome teaches that Mary did not experience pain in childbirth, because that too is a consequence of sin. And that's one reason Revelation 12, 2, 12, 1 and 2 can't be considered to be fulfilled in visions of Mary being, you know, appearing in modern times, because that woman in Revelation 12 was a sinful woman, right? She had childbirth pains, even if you take it kind of figuratively. Um, but... In his introduction to the Assumption Dogma, Pope Pius XII, who introduced this dogma in 18, I'm sorry, 1950, uh, he referred to the Immaculate Conception Dogma and said that it's obvious that the Assumption Dogma is true because the Immaculate Conception Dogma is true. And he, uh, he had the authority to do it because he had infallibility now. And so you see this, this Marian dogma of the Assumption of Mary was constructed on the two pillars that the apparitions of Mary had helped establish before, the Immaculate Conception and Papal Infallibility. And uh, 
There, there is uh, yet more work to be done by Rome on this issue, and that is to define the final Marian dogma. And the apparitions of Mary have, have not been idle. Uh, in in 1950, when Pope Pius XII did proclaim that Mary had been assumed body and soul into heaven, there yet remained one more uh, thing to be done, and the apparitions of Mary went right to work. And uh, very shortly after that proclamation, a vision of Mary appeared to Ida Peterman in Amsterdam, Holland, and said it's time for the Pope to go forward with one yet one more doctrine, that is to proclaim uh, Mary to be the uh, co-mediatrist, redemptors, and advocate for the people of God. So, now, you know, we see uh, statues of demons in Rome, practices uh, of demons in Rome, articles introduced to the church by demons, icons of Mary introduced to the church by, by demons. You have uh, popes being persuaded by demons, infallible popes being persuaded by demons to proclaim doctrines. You have infallible councils being swayed uh, by apparitions of Mary, by demons to proclaim dogma. Uh, what I want to talk about next is the influence of the visions of Mary on individual popes. I've already talked with you about how Pope Pius IX received a private message from the vision of Mary in 1846. Uh, the apparition of Mary at Fatima had a, the Fatima secret, which was to be delivered to the Pope. It, it was delivered to Pope Benedict uh, the 15th in 1917 and has been read by every Pope to hold the throne or the seat of St. Peter since then. Uh, this is a secret that, uh, from what I understand it in the accounts, Anytime the Pope reads this, you know, when they, they ascend to the throne, they open up the, the golden box that has the, the Fatima secret in it, and they read it, and they tremble and put it back in the box. Uh, and, and I don't know what the contents are. There's been a lot of theories about it. But the point is, that the Popes, who are they consulting? What's the first thing they do when they take office? <laughs> I know what the apparition said in 1917, the, the demon in 1917. John Paul II has also received uh, private messages uh, from apparitions. I'm sure he's read the Fatima secret by now. Uh, he also has received a, bit, uh, a secret message from the vision of Mary in Medjugorje. And I will quote to you from a diary from a pilgrim to Medjugorje. Uh, the entry is, My question to Maria, who is the visionary, My question to Maria was, uh, Has Our Lady given a message to Our Holy Father? Yes, she replied. Well, what was it, I asked. It was for him, she answered. Oh, I said, and the whole crowd laughed. It was a special message for him, she explained. So, so John Paul II has also received his, uh, his own private uh, revelation from uh, a demon from the pit of hell. Uh, what, I, what I want to talk about, though, is the public uh, mandate that was given at Fatima in 1917. And the apparition commanded, uh, said, what Our Lady wants, this is the, in the words of uh, Fat, uh, Lucia, who is the Fatima visionary, she said, what Our Lady wants is that the Pope and all the bishops in the world shall consecrate Russia to her immaculate heart on one special day. If this is done, she will convert Russia and there will be peace. I said earlier in the talk that uh, John Paul II considers himself to be the custodian of the Fatima mandate or the Fatima promise. That is, if Russia would be, uh, if, if the Pope in uniting himself in intention with all the bishops of the world on one special day would consecrate Russia to Mary's immaculate heart, then... Uh, she will convert Russia and there will be peace. And if, if the Pope doesn't do this, then the errors of communism would spread throughout the whole globe. And as Richard uh, uh, pointed out earlier, uh, uh, economically, uh, Rome's economic system is, is, is communist or socialist. And so the apparition hasn't kept its promise. The errors of communism have spread throughout the whole world in Roman Catholicism. But, but Pope, what, what I want to point out is that the, the different Popes have all scrambled to fulfill the, the, the mandate of the apparition of Mary at Fatima. 
Pope Pius XII, on July 7, 1952, consecrated the world and particularly the Russian people to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but not in union with all the bishops of the world. And so he didn't quite do it right. And uh, Pope Paul VI in 1964 would try again, and he consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but did not mention Russia. And so, once again, uh, kind of messed up. And John Paul II would pick up the prophet's mantle and try again May 13, 1982. And he united himself in intention with all the bishops of the world to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, but Russia was only mentioned as part of the consecration and was not the focus of it, therefore falling just short of accommodating the Phantom Mandate. So, John Paul II was uh, not to be discouraged and certainly didn't want his honor to pass on to the next Pope after him, so he tried again. Uh, March 25, 1984, he did it right. And he said, the act requested at Fatima is now accomplished. Now listen to this. He, all the popes, well, many popes since uh, Benedict XV in 1917, have just scrambled to fulfill the mandate of a demon from hell. And when one of them finally gets it right, listen to what the first thing he does is, the act requested at Fatima is now accomplished, but now it is necessary for every bishop to consecrate his own diocese, every pastor his own parish, every father and mother their own family. Uh, what he has done, he's doing what Pius XI did. What does Pius XI do? He quoted from a vision of Jesus, said this teaching is commanded on the whole church, and effectively, he handed over the entire teaching authority of Rome to the hands of a demon. Well, John Paul II has pretty much done the same thing. He says, now that I've fulfilled the request of the vision of Mary, now it's time for everybody else in the Roman Catholic religion to do the same thing. Uh, so, where, where does that put us? Uh, we, we've got, uh, we have visions of Mary that are introducing uh, dogma. They are, we have statues and icons that are, are designed after uh, demonic impersonators of Mary. We've got practices from devotion to the Sacred Heart, reparation to the Sacred Heart, uh, rosaries, scapulars, miraculous medals, all introduced by demons from the pits of hell. Uh, dogma is established, doctrines are forms, uh, forced, indulgences are granted based on uh, fulfilling the practices uh, prescribed by visions of Mary, which are demonic. Uh, entire infallible uh, councils are swayed based on the influence of demons from the pit of hell and public mandates. Uh, to popes and then popes passing those public mandates on uh, to, to Rome and, and all of her adherents. Uh, basically, the entire, uh, the entire religion of Rome has willingly received instructions from demons and uh, the teachings of demons and has bowed the knee to images which were given to the church by demons, by, to the religion by demons. Now, this may sound outlandish and some people might consider it to be a bit of a stretch to say that the apparitions of Mary actually influenced the Roman Catholic religion into proclaiming these dogmas. But what I want to do is quote to you from people like uh, Bud McFarland of the Mary Foundation who concur with my analysis short of acknowledging that the apparitions are demonic. He agrees with everything else I've said tonight. Well, not everything, but he's agreed with a lot. He says, Our Lady, this is a, this is a tape from the Mary Foundation and uh, it's called Mary and Apparitions Explained. This is Bud McFarland. Our Lady gave to St. Catherine Labouret on November 17, 1830, the miraculous medal. And around the medal it said on the outside of the oval frame, O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Again, declaring her power as an intercession, an intercessor, but now proclaiming officially what had always been taught. Notice how he considers Mary's medal as the official proclamation of the dogma, even if it came 24 years prior to Pope Pius IX uh, taking that. That responsibility. Her Immaculate Conception, conceived in the womb of St. Anne, her mother, 
freed from original sin. And our Holy Father, Pope Pius IX, 18 years later, writes an encyclical on her Immaculate Conception, and in 1854 proclaims as an official dogma of the Church the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And in fact, when Our Lady appears in 1858 to St. Bernadette at Lourdes on March 25th, she says, I am the Immaculate Conception, reconfirming the Pope's official proclamation of this dogma. Uh, Bob and Penny Lord, who authored the book that, uh, appropriately titled The Many Faces of Mary, agree with me, or at least they agree with Bud. I'll say that. They agree with Bud McFarlane on this. There was, now, now listen, uh, they're actually saying that Mary recognized there was a need for this dogma. And so that's when she took action. Listen to what uh, Bob and Penny Lord said about how the visions of Mary have influenced the Roman Catholic religion. There was a great need for the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary to enter into the consciousness of the people. Mary began, <laughs> Mary began her crusade for renewal of devotion to her Immaculate Conception on the Rue de Bac in Paris in 1830. She continued pressing the point home until Pius IX officially proclaimed the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception in 1854. In the event that there was still any doubt in the mind of the faithful, she appeared to St. Bernadette at Lourdes in 1858 and made the statement, I am the Immaculate Conception. Like I said, we have the pictures right here. The the apparition of Mary introducing uh, practices. We have Roman Catholics acknowledging that the apparitions of Mary actually influenced the proclamation of the Immaculate Conception dogma. Uh, And and as we know, the apparitions of Mary actively influenced the proclamation of the, the doctrine of infallibility. Um, the, the one that I really want to hone in on is from a Roman Catholic priest called uh, Michael Scanlon. In, uh, in July 6th, on July 6th in uh, 1994, he was speaking at Holy Family Catholic Church in Ogden, Utah. And I obtained a video of his, of his uh, homily that day. And he basically went on for a whole hour talking about all the different Marian apparitions in history. And he really wasn't telling me anything I didn't know. But he did say something at the end that was very curious. He said... We're a church that believes in Scripture and tradition. This is his emphasis. We're a church that believes in Scripture and tradition. This is our tradition. This is part of the belief of our church. The traditions of Our Lady's apparitions and those messages. The Roman Catholics acknowledge that, that they, to some degree, have been taught by the visions of Mary and instructed by them. And so, I just wanted to end on uh, 1 Timothy 4.1. Uh, Richard referred to this earlier. Now the Spirit uh, speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Uh, You know, we've seen it all tonight. Images provided to the church by devils. uh, Councils being swayed by devils. Popes proclaiming doctrines of devils. uh, Roman Catholics being told to to practice the practices which were introduced by devils. uh, Wearing medals, praying their rosaries. Uh, popes receiving secret messages uh, from devils, uh, scampering about trying to obey uh, every little jot and tittle of the request that's made uh, by the devil that appeared at Fatima in 1917. So the, the question that we come back to is that are there sheep in the Roman Catholic uh, religion? And, and the question is always posed because uh, people want some level of comfort to know that a departed relative may, may yet be in heaven or they have close friends who are still Roman, uh, practicing Roman Catholics, or they want some, some affirmation from you that still uh, Rome may yet be a denomination within uh, Christianity. And uh, my answer remains, uh, the Roman Catholic religion is in league with the devil. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we 
were here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.